great to see everyone back. Um, welcome back to those who've been traveling over Christmas. Lovely to have people back again. Um, um, commiserations to anyone who's had this cold cough thing that's been going around. Is that, how many of us have had this thing? Because it just seems to have been like a season of ill, right? Just everyone's been ill for so long. Um, but we're going to be... Um, we're going to be teaching into a message today, which I think may have some significance for us, for not just today um, and this moment, but actually something that the Lord is wanting to do in us um, for some time to come. Um, and in a sense, actually, it's what he's always looking to do in his church, but it felt just particularly important at this moment. So before I begin, I'm just going to pray for us, um, just so we get our hearts um, into the right place um, before him. So let's pray. Yeah, Father, we just recognize that it is, a, it is a good and human and natural and joyful thing to come to your presence. And Lord, that it is also the weightiest and most sincere and significant thing we could ever do. And Father, I really just, we just want to pray as we begin today with open hearts and saying, Lord, we've bought all sorts of different stuff and wonderful news and challenges and the year has started differently for different ones of us already lord we've got very different feelings in the room but holy spirit we want to begin with an open heart to your work amongst us and so as we just rest under the truths of your word holy spirit i pray that you would fall we want to pray that your truth would be what is spoken here today and Holy Spirit, we want to pray that you would soften and move amongst us to set us free in the wonderful, joyful, childlike, humble, good, holy truths of your word. We just offer you ourselves and say, come and do your stuff because we want our lives to be like you want our lives to look. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So one of the great things um, of having kids who are getting older is as they get older, their presents get cooler. Um, and so a few years ago, it was kind of like little plastic pepper Pig toys and that kind of stuff. And you kind of found yourself kind of playing these little games and doing the little voices and so on. But this year, and I've got a bias towards Jake's presence, it was lightsabers, hoverboards. Everyone know what I mean by hover? Not the Back to the Future kind. I was a little disappointed at first because I was like, it doesn't actually hover. <laughs> I feel like it's got another name as well, but it's got two wheels, and you stand on it, and if you lean forward, hover, it is called a hover. That's what we search for on Amazon. So it's, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sit down with the kids over here, Becky Watson. Strong. Oh, wow, wow. We could give you a good tip for one. Um, amazing, but also weirdly difficult as an adult, because your center of gravity, this is what I tell the kids, my center of gravity is too high for me to be stable on it. So I think it's a thing. I think it's a thing. I'm sure it is. Um, yeah, lightsabers have been amazing, Lego fighter jets um, and all. It's just been amazing. And it kind of reminds me of like when I was a kid and the build-up to Christmas. And my birthday's quite close to Christmas. And so I'd be waiting all year, like I'm longing for what's it going to be. And I'd be thinking all year, what do I want? What Lego set do I want? Or what cool piece of sports equipment do I want? Or what toy is it this year? Or whatever it was. And... As I think back, I kind of remember the feeling of the excitement of Christmas Day and then getting this thing. But then, within a week or so, the kind of feeling of the novelty slightly worn off a little bit. Do you remember that thing? 
Um, and you built up for it for so long, and it was good and it was fun, but actually it ultimately didn't end up being quite as fulfilling to your very soul as you thought it might be. And I reckon we can kind of upscale this, actually. And we can realize that actually as, as life goes on, sometimes we got the thing in life that we were longing to get. We got the dream job. And it was awesome and it was good, but actually it didn't complete our soul in the way we wanted to. Or we, um, we got the thing that we'd been longing to get, and actually it didn't complete our soul in the way that we wanted it to. Or we got the house that we were longing to have, but actually we still carried some of our same wounds and pains into that house. Or we got the body shape we wanted, possibly not right after Christmas, <laughs> but actually we still felt insecure. Or dare I say it, even we got the marriage we wanted. And actually we realized that even in the place of that beautiful and good as it is, that we could be in that place and think, actually, I'm still feeling like my soul isn't fulfilled by any of the many good things that there can be in my life. Getting what I wanted didn't fulfill my soul. You can get everything you want and still feel discontented. I typed a question to Google this week. I have everything I ever wanted. Why am I still unhappy? That wasn't my question, by the way. <laughs> I did it in research for this talk. Um, caveat for that. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Come on back. Um, and the question is everywhere, from mental health blogs to lifestyle things to meaningfulmama.com, um, which I had a little bit of a look at this week. And we just know, don't we, from just the stories of the rich and the famous, that often it looks like an external story of success, but actually behind the scenes it's a story of pain and wounding and insecurity. Maybe just even some of the little revelations we've had coming out this week from Prince Harry's memoirs just show that. This life which actually from a distance could look like it is success and prominence and visibility, but actually behind the scenes there's pain and a family with really, really deep wounds. Maybe a character in the Bible who captures this really powerfully is the Old Testament King Solomon. Solomon was the guy who had it all. He was the guy who you hated on Instagram, <laughs> if Instagram were a thing in the ancient world. He was wealthy. He was wise. If you wanted, you know that person who you probably got in your family, you talked to at Christmas, who actually knows about every topic in the world, and even the topics that you think you're knowledgeable on, they seem to know more about it than you do. Solomon was that guy. If the Song of Solomon, as the uh, Old Testament um, poetic uh, song is to be believed. He was also devilishly good looking. This guy had it all. And he writes in Ecclesiastes 2 about his hunger and his desire to find contentment in the things and the world around him. I'm going to read you just some of those words. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2 from verse 1. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? This isn't the most cheerful book in the world, but it does go somewhere. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing um, folly. My mind still guided me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. Context is everything. The delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. 
In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had taught to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You get this feeling of a guy who just longs just to find fullness and contentment and life and joy and something in his soul that feels rested and alive and contented and at peace. But he looks everywhere and he tries everything. But in the end, it feels, in his word, meaningless. The Hebrew word means vapor. It feels lightweight. It doesn't feel of substance or real or enduring. The earnest desire in the book of Ecclesiastes, is longing for something of substance upon which to build your soul upon, that you may find the settledness of soul that actually all of us deeply, deeply desire. Now, I think that even though many of us have got those experiences of where we kind of found the thing that we wanted, or got the answer to the prayer that we've been longing for, or that that job, that relationship, that body shape, that whatever it is actually came to be, the funny thing is we can often still get back into that same kind of circuit of it again. And we can find ourselves saying, even though we learned that yesterday and we know that's true, we can still find ourselves in this moment saying, my life feels imperfect. What do I need to fix it? And very quickly, our mind can start scanning for all those different things that might solve it. And it might be that career change or that relationship or that political ideology to come into power or that, that ethical, flattering wardrobe that perfectly balances your natural colorings. Or just to be that person who always pops up in their Instagram with their fantastically perfect life. And all of us can probably answer that question at a deeper level. If only I had something, I'd be happy, I'd be content. Fill your blank. What inhabits that space for you? What thing are you there saying, I feel insufficient, I feel inadequate? I feel like I'm lacking until that thing comes into my life. We can live defined by the lack, thinking we always have to make it up to be complete, to be peaceful, to be joyful, and to have the kind of life that we long for. Now, this touches on an issue that sits again and again and again in the center of the biblical story. We can barely turn a few pages without this idea coming up. It just comes back again and again and again, in so many stories, in so many ways, in so many different angles, from early in Genesis right through into the New Testament. But it uses a word that we don't tend to use very often. It's the word idolatry. Idolatry. A word that fills anyone with joy in the room. Probably not. (laughs) It's a word that most of us, we think about idols, most of us think of sort of untouchable celebrity lives or whatever. But idolatry in the scriptures is actually an essential idea for understanding the human condition. And before we come kind of back to ourselves, I just want us to have a quick look about how idolatry worked as an idea in the ancient world. Because most of us, when we think about idolatry, probably with a little bit of Sunday school background, imagine somebody wearing ancient clothing, bowing down to a statue. Something like that probably comes to mind. Now, there's some truth in that for the ancient world. Let's have a look at um, Rome for a start. Rome Rome had a lot of gods. Um, They sort of amalgamated their gods with the gods of Greece, putting Roman names um, onto, the, onto the gods of ancient Greece. Um, they had the god of strength, Hercules, whose picture is going to appear on the screen. Hercules is always f- phenomenally ripped in every single statue you can find of him. 
Um, incidentally, I had to, there was a huge amount of nudity in these statues. So I've tried to, <laughs> I've tried to pick the slightly more modest variety and occasionally have cropped the photo where necessary at the appropriate point. But the god of strength, Hercules, there was the god of youth, Juventus. Nothing to do with the modern-day football team, but the god of youth. There was the god of freedom, Libertas. Her statues actually became the kind of backdrop to the modern-day statue of liberty. There was the god of, goddess of sex uh, called Venus. Uh, you simply can't find one of her fully clothed, so I'm sorry. Just, you just got to <laughs> roll with it. Um, there was a the goddess of abundance who was called Abundantia. Um, appropriately. There was, the, there was the god of love, Cupid, whose image a lot of us are familiar with from really bad Valentine's Day cards. And there was the god of pleasure and wine called Bacchus, who was a total party animal by the sound of things. And the people would, and, and many, many, many more, many, many, many more. And the way religion worked for people is that if you had a desire into a particular area, you would make sacrifices and prayers to your God. So if you were deeply desiring more abundance in your life, you would go to Abundantia. If you were desiring more pleasure in your life, it was all about Bacchus. If it was love that you were deeply desiring, it was Cupid. If you wanted eternal youth, you went to Juventus. And so there was a sense in which the deeper longings of humankind was directed towards these different gods and goddesses. And the, the spirituality of the people in the world that the gospel of Jesus broke into was all around how do we find something that will fulfill my desires. They would go to the temples, they would bow down to the statues, they would bring sacrifices. And if you wanted fullness in any of these areas, you appealed to that god. Now, when I think about us, we don't have the statues, right? But actually, I think if we take an honest look at our culture, I'm not sure that we could honestly say that we are any less a culture that idolizes strength or youth or freedom or sex or abundance or love or pleasure than any of the rest of it. The idea of idolatry actually sits at a far deeper level than simply the forms of the worship. Rather, this is a question that goes deep into the human heart around what are you deeply looking to fulfill yourself? It goes to that yearning desire of Solomon, saying, I want a life, not that it's built on the things that are vapor, but I want a life that's built on something of substance. What would I, if I had more of this, I would be happy. If I had more strength, if I had more abundance, if I had more youth, if I had more sex, love, pleasure, freedom, whatever, then I'd be more happy. These are mantras of our cultural moment. For so many people, we are living in this cultural narrative of if I had more of any of these things, my life would be happier, freer, fuller, and better. 20th century theologian and activist William Stringfellow put it like this. Idolatry is pervasive in every time and culture, no less now than yesterday, no less in Washington than in Gomorrah. Indeed, it might be argued that contemporary Western man is more enslaved to idols than his supposedly less civilized counterpart, precisely because he is, in, uh, because he is presumably less ignorant about the world in which he lives and because his favorite idols are the familiar realities of daily life, religion, work, money, status, sex, patriotism. C.S. Lewis put it like this, human history is the long and terrible story of man, I should say or woman in all of these, by the way. Girls, this is, a <laughs> this is a, all, every gender 
thing of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet, points to the heart nature behind the, behind the idolatry of his day in the Old Testament times. In Ezekiel chapter 14, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these men, these people, this nation has set up idols in their hearts. No, not just in their temples. This is something which has gone right into the heart of who they are. Idolatry is a matter of the heart. John Calvin, the 16th century Christian writer, said the human heart is an idol factory. It is constantly looking for anything that will be its ultimate source of life and goodness. This is an idea that just comes up in the scriptures again and again and again. And the basic idea is it is a long of idolatry, is that it is a longing for something and a dependence upon something which becomes your ultimate thing. It becomes the place to which you ultimately go for your fullness. It displaces, displaces God as your ultimate with the thing that you desire, with the freedom, with the sex, with the relationship, with the abundance, whatever it might be. It is an exchange from the thing that was meant to be good to something that you have started to make ultimate. Romans chapter 1, Paul begins his lengthy argument about the human condition. And he begins essentially describing to his readers in Rome, who have all of these temples and all these gods and goddesses and all the uh, abundant statue nudity that they kind of went with it. And he writes to them and he argues about the human condition. And he roots the human condition and the problems of the human condition not in, actually in any of the sins that we might start think that he would start in. He doesn't begin by saying the problem is money, or the problem is sex, or the problem is power, or even the problem is pride. But rather he says the root problem of every other thing that you will find in the world is idolatry. It is idolatry. It is the replacing of your first love with anything else that is not him. It is exchanging the one who should be your first love and your number one desire and the only one who can fulfill you with anything else that you might pursue. Although they claimed to be wise, he says, they became fools, they being humankind, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. You see, we often think that the root of sin is wrong desires or wrong actions. But actually, the root of sin is not the wrong desires or the wrong actions. It's wrong worship. And actually, what Paul articulates in Romans 1 is that when your, when your worship is wrong, actually, your whole life breaks down. That's where the wounding of the planet begins. Everything begins in right worship. You have to put your first love in the right place. This is a deep question, not just about uh, arbitrary lists of rights and wrongs, but about the priorities of our hearts. And Paul wants to go right in there that the salvation story of Jesus, that he came to die and to liberate humans into the life that he longs for us to have, begins in undermining us placing our ultimate confidence in anything that is not him. It's everywhere in the Bible. This is why the Old Testament prophets speak so much about idolatry. This is why the first three of the Ten Commandments are about worship. This is why the fear of the Lord, which has to do with ultimate dependence upon him, is the beginning of wisdom. This is why John completely inexplicably otherwise finishes his first letter with what seems otherwise like the worst sign-off in history. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Mic drop. This is why the most important commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. 
Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which is a brilliant exposition of idolatry in our current moment, writes these words. Idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. We never break the other commandments without breaking the first one. All we do and all we are flows from the priorities of our hearts. It flows from the place of what is our ultimate? What is our first? What is the thing that we depend on and lean on and hunger for and point our lives towards more than anything else? And it's so simple. The simple invitation of the Bible is always this. Your first love is to be him because your ultimate satisfaction, your ultimate being, your ultimate fullness and your ultimate freedom can and only will ever be found in him. Why? Because that's how he made you. (laughs) And he made you with such love for you that he designed the universe that if you tried to live in any way that wasn't the most intimate love relationship with him, everything else would start to fall apart. That when he made the world, he was so desirous of you and of me that he ordered things, that this whole gig is only going to work out if he remains, our, he remains our first love, for we are always, always his. Now, we've got to pause here. <laughs> we've got to pause here. Because there's something about idols that we've not mentioned. And that's kind of maybe implicit, but can be massively misunderstood if we don't name it. Idols are nearly always good things. They are nearly always good things. And so when we list those things, abundance, sex, youth, strength, we're not listing things that are bad. They're not, we're not listing things that are bad if we want them. Rather, the, the question of the Bible is that what is your ultimate thing? What is ultimate? Because the problem is not when we recognize things as good. The problem is when we become so geared towards these things that we live under the uh, illusion that we will be fulfilled if only we could get them. And for each one of us, we have our own lists of things. We have our own things in our hearts and our minds that we feel deficient if we didn't have them. That we feel like we're somehow second rate or not as happy and well as we could be. Those things are almost certainly good things, but they're secondary. (laughs) They're secondary things. And the urging of the scriptures is not that you displace or ignore or dishonor the relevance of those desires. It's probably for something good. It may even be for something vocational. Your vocation can become an idol, (laughs) weirdly enough. It may even be something that he is deeply desiring to bless you with. But rather, God knows that those things will become something which enslave us if they are not put underneath the first love of him. I think, um, yeah, when we come to this question, we have to just deeply recognize how much the Father is aware of our deepest desires. And as we hold this question, and as we recognize there are parts in our lives where we are longing for something, and it has cost us not to have it, and we've been praying for it, and we have been earnestly desirous of it, the desire may be something which is exactly on his, on his agenda to do. The psalm says that he has collected our tears in a bottle. There are things that we have wept over, right, that we long to see. There are things that we long to see fulfilled and come to be in our lives. This is not a question of whether those desires may or may not be something which he brings to pass. But it's really just simply a question of priority. Because when we live under the idea that that thing that you long for is the only thing that will fulfill you and will ultimately bring you happiness, you get it and you'll realize it doesn't work. 
you'll get it. And it has as much danger of enslaving you rather than to be received simply as something with gratitude because it's a gift of the Father. James says every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. Every good gift is really just an expression of his goodness. You can only see that when he's our first love. The earnest desire of the Father is to set us free. He's so desirous of doing it. And he sees everything that we're longing for. He sees the things that we weep for, the things that we pray for. But he knows that the flourishing of each one of our hearts will only happen from the place of knowing, knowing, knowing that the thing that will only ever deeply fulfill us at the most essential levels will be him and more of his presence. And actually every human thing that we come across actually is just like a little window into the heavenly things that are held in his character and his person. That little insights into what he is like, that little connections to his goodness, his kindness, his heart. Those things that we long to see, those things that we celebrate that we already have, (laughs) they really are just little points where we connect to something of the goodness of the Father. I want to just take a moment just to pause because I think the, a place where actually I think many of us are wrestling and have wrestled is a place where we've earnestly longed for something in prayer, but it hasn't yet happened. I don't think I'm going to be alone in that feeling in the room. I just wonder sometimes, and Keller actually talks about this in his book, whether God's not yet on our prayers is sometimes because he needs to purify desire first. He needs to set us free from the idea that you will only be complete and happy if you can get this thing. And he wants to instruct your soul in a different way and remind you, you are utterly enough with him. You are deeply enough in him. You are not deficient without this. You are not lacking without this. But you have all that you need in him. There's a line in the Psalms, Psalm 37 verse 4, that reads like this. Delight yourself in the Lord, the priority of the heart, him first. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Then about you. I so want to skip over part one of that verse and get right into number two. <laughs> right? <laughs> and my list is pretty long. <laughs> Lord, let's go there. But how many of us really abide in the first part of that? And you know what? I think we need the first part of that. Delight yourself in the Lord. Because it's only when he is our delight that we can receive anything else freely. As a gift. As a gift. Money. It's a beautiful gift in the hands of the kingdom minded. It's not morally bad. It's morally neutral. It's to be used for the, for the purposes of the kingdom. The things of abundance, not morally bad, morally neutral. It's so good in the hands of those who have God as their first love. Sex, 100% not bad. A beautiful gift that God has given into creation. But it's secondary to our fullness, to the fullness of knowing him. Delight ourselves in the Lord. And he will give us the desires of our heart.